me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. I have never been a big fan of math. Any, any math people out there? Any math teachers? <laughs> I unfortunately found out that there was a few math teachers in the first service when I said that, and I had to repent after in dust and ashes. I told them, though, here's the thing. I, I'm never crazy about math, but I do enjoy statistics, and that is math, right? Right? No, it's fake math. Uh, no, it's math. Uh, my wife likes to make fun of me because she says I make up statistics. And I told her, look, I only make up statistics 75% of the time. Um, <laughs> so no big deal. I do find statistics to be interesting, though, like to, to learn about the probability, the likelihood or unlikelihood that something will happen. Another way we, we describe that is with the odds. We say things like, what are the odds that the weather will be nice this week? Or what are the odds that the sermon will be any good today? It's probably, honestly, about 1 out of 52, and sadly, Easter has already passed. But I was looking up recently the odds on some situations. For example, I googled, what are the odds of being audited by the IRS? Uh, No particular reason. Uh, (laughs) The odds are 1 in 160. That is way too small. (laughs) I don't know, or or too big, whatever you determine. I, I don't like that. It's not good. Here's another one. Uh, what are the odds of bowling a perfect game? They are 11,500 to 1, unless you play with me, and they are much worse. <laughs> what do you think of the odds of being struck by lightning? How, oh, close. They are 1 in 114,000. Here's one that I have actually witnessed. True story in high school, my friend was flipping a coin, it was a nickel. And he was tossing it around, and he looked down at the ground, and believe it or not, the nickel landed on its side. What are the odds of tossing a nickel in the air and it standing up on its side? It is 1 in 6,000, so maybe not that impressive after all as we thought. This morning, I want you to think about some spiritual odds. For example, what are the odds that you and I could earn our place in heaven? If we were to base it on how we live, what are the odds that you or me could be good enough that when we die, God would let us into his holy and perfect place? What do you think? If you were given 100 chances at life, 1,000 chances at life, could you do it? Well, I hope you know, if you've been here with us through this message series in Romans, you know the odds are quite bad. In fact, in Romans 1 through 3, Paul made clear that our odds of being good enough for God based on how we live, are not just bad, they're zero. We can't do it. None of us will ever be able to achieve our own salvation with our own effort and make it to heaven because we're all sinners. We sin. And if we had a million tries, we'd sin at least a million times, wouldn't we? It's because we're born sinners. It's a part of our nature. So thinking about those impossible odds, that makes my belief that I will be in heaven when I die, quite bold. For us to say we have a relationship with a holy God, that we're loved by him, that we will be with him forever, based on the odds we just calculated, that's ridiculous. How could we possibly think that? Well, we think that because we know we have a God who has defied all odds. We have a God who created the entire universe by speaking it into existence out of nothing. We have a God who raised his own son Jesus from the dead. And we have a God who against all odds 
saved a sinner like me. And he continues to save people today. That's the point of our message this morning as we continue walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman church. Let's remind ourselves that in this section of the letter, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is addressing this big concern that the early church had. There were Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people from the Old Testament. They had God's word. They had his prophets. They had his promises. They had all these blessings. And yet, they had the odds stacked in their favor. And yet, they had rejected Jesus, the very one who came to save them. And then you have the Gentiles. These were the people who were from other nations who were not Jews, who did not know God's word. They weren't even looking for the Messiah to come save them. Yet somehow, against all odds, they were turning to Jesus and believing in him with joy. That was the conundrum that was causing this confusion in the early church. How could this happen? Paul, has God broken his promises to Israel? Are you saying the Old Testament doesn't matter at all? How does this all fit together, Jew and Gentile, Israel and the church? That's what Paul's been explaining. He's having this sort of back and forth argument with himself. He, He poses a question. Then he answers that and explains it, right? Remember in chapter 9, he really leaned into God's sovereign purpose and election. We saw that somehow God works mysteriously to save his people and advance his plan of redemption. Then in chapter 10, he really leaned into Israel's responsibility for rejecting Jesus. We saw that, yeah, even though God is sovereign, we're still responsible to believe. And we're still responsible to take the gospel to people. And that brings us to chapter 11 today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the first 10 verses this morning, and then we'll come back at the end and say, what does this mean for us? And we'll apply it to our lives today. So look with me at Romans chapter 11. Let's just start with this first verse. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. There's a key question of this whole section. He's saying, hey, is God done with Israel? Has he given up on them? Has he rejected them? Let's remember, this was not just some theological exercise for these people. They, they weren't just sitting around like we do today and having some kind of fun debate. No, this was a big burden on their hearts because this concerned their family, their, their friends. That's what he means by his people, the Israelites. These were their people. They wanted to know if the people they loved had been forsaken by God. Paul says to that again, his favorite phrase, by no means, no way. How do you know, Paul? Prove it, Paul. Here's how he proves it. Look at the rest of verse 1. He says, For I, Paul, myself, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, hey, you want some proof that what I'm saying is true? I'm the proof. I'm living proof that God has not rejected his people because he saved me. See, Paul was a Jew. He was Jewish through and through so much that he knew the tribe he came from. And God had radically saved Paul as a Jew. It wasn't just him, but All the apostles at this time were Jewish Christians. We've already established in the Roman church there were a number of Jews who had become Christians. So the fact that Jews were coming to faith in Jesus proved that God had not rejected them. As Paul continues to make this point, he does something next we see throughout the whole section. He's going to connect his argument with the Old Testament to show that this is not something new. He's not just making this up, and really this shouldn't be a surprise. There's always been, within the nation of Israel, a small group of people that truly believe. He calls them a remnant. Look at verses 2 through 5. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And to make his point here, Paul references a story about Elijah. Elijah, he is a member of the Old Testament Hall of Fame. Greatest prophet, the most widely known prophet in the Jewish people. So they would have know, known this story. They would have been familiar with it. This, this time he's pointing out where Elijah was on the run for his life. At this time, Israel had turned far away from God. They had this wicked king named Ahab, who along with his wife Jezebel, had led the people of God to reject God and worship idols, including a, another god named Baal. Because Elijah was a true prophet of God, he obviously, he, he challenged them. He said, hey, this is not right. We've got to repent from this. So you can imagine, Ahab and Jezebel, they didn't like Elijah. So much so that Jezebel put out a hit on Elijah. She promised to find him and kill him. So what did Elijah do? He ran. He ran way out into the wilderness where no one could find him. He hid. He was terrified. He was even depressed to the point where he prayed for God to take his life. Because he thought that he was the only one left who was still faithful to God. He said, God, it's just me. I'm the only one left. There's nobody else. This is it. This is the end of your people. And what did God tell him? God told him that contrary to how things looked, not everyone had rejected the Lord, Elijah. Notice God kept 7,000 men for himself. There were 7,000 men who had not worshipped the false god of Baal and were still faithful to the Lord in the days of Elijah. Now, that was not a lot of people. Out of an entire nation, there's only 7,000 left who trusted God. But here's the point Paul wants us to see. At one of the lowest points in Israel's history where things seemed to be at their worst, when their greatest prophet thought it was just him, God had kept the people for himself. And that's what we see throughout the entire Old Testament. Over and over again, all throughout Israel's history, many of the people who were a part of God's chosen nation turned away from him. They sinned. They worshipped other gods. They said, God, I don't want anything to do with you. Yet, God always kept a remnant for himself. And Paul says that was true at the present time as well when he wrote in the first century. And it's still true today. There has been, there always will be people from a Jewish ethnicity who turn and trust in Jesus. And here's why we know this to be true. At the end of verse 5, Paul tells us it's because the remnant is chosen by grace. And Paul here wants to remind us what makes grace, well, grace. Look at verse 6. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here's something we've seen over and over again. God does not owe anyone salvation. We cannot earn it. We cannot be good enough for it. Grace by its very nature excludes any merit, any work on our part. And grace by its very definition, it means that it's a free gift. So the only way anyone can have a relationship with God is purely by grace. That includes the Jewish people. That includes you. That includes me. If anyone believes in Jesus, it's only because of the radical grace of God through Jesus Christ. So that means God is the one who gets credit for salvation. He kept the faithful remnant. He kept them from Abraham all the way to Paul. And to this day, he chose them by his grace. 
Here's how Paul sums up this thought in verse 7. Look at that. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That question, what then, it's Paul's way of referring back to his original question in verse 1. He says, hey, what, what do you think? What then? Has God rejected his people? No, here's what we learn. They've rejected him. Look at who Paul places the blame on for Israel's salvation. Israel. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, what does that mean? What was Israel seeking? He's referring back to something he talked about at the end of chapter 9. He explained there that Israel sought to obtain a relationship with God on the basis of their own good works. In other words, they tried to earn righteousness by being good, by following the law. But they failed. They couldn't do it. And we can't do it either. Yet it's important to understand that this is the most dominant religious belief in the world today. In fact, if you study every single world religion and the general thoughts of average Americans today, even those who claim the label Christian, a lot of them believe this exact thing. They think if if I do enough, if I'm good enough, if I do the right spiritual things, A, B, C, D, then when I die, I'll go to the good place. and I won't have to go to the bad place. So I just got to stay on that straight and narrow and do my best and I'll make it. I hope you have seen and heard by now, that ain't it. That is impossible. We will never make it to any good place or have any relationship with God on our own efforts. If salvation is up to me, man, I'm done for. I won't ever make it. And that was the Jewish people's great great mistake. They, They misunderstood God's grace. They attempted to obtain God's righteousness with their own good works. And through that effort, they rejected God. And that's what work salvation is. It's rejecting God. It's saying, hey, I don't need you, God. I can do this myself. I can work my way to heaven. I don't need your grace. It's rejecting him. It's saying, I don't want you. I don't need you. And as a result, Paul says they were hardened. The elect, those who were chosen by God, who trusted in Jesus, they were made righteous through Christ. But the rest who didn't trust in Jesus, they were hardened. And let's notice here, it doesn't say that they hardened themselves. It says they were hardened. It's passive. Well, By who? Who hardened the hearts of the Jewish people? Here's what we're going to see. God did. God did. Here's how we know that. Look at these last verses, verses 8 through 10. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul quotes three more Old Testament passages. That first quote is a mix of Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, where it speaks of God hardening the people of Israel as judgment against their sin. This passage talks about hardening as a spirit of stupor. If you go back to Isaiah in the original passage, it describes this as a deep sleep. That's what it means to have a hard heart against God. It's to be fully unaware, uninterested, blinded to God and his ways. It's to have eyes and ears, but to be unable to see and hear. Second quote comes from Psalm 69, which is actually a prayer from David over his enemies. And here Paul, he applies it to the Jewish people who rejected Jesus. 
because of their rejection. Their hearts have been hardened. They become enemies of God. See, even though they had Jewish DNA, even though they were related to Father Abraham, he makes clear that all those who reject Jesus stand under the judgment of God. But here's what Paul does again and again. Here's what he's doing. He wants us to see that this should not have been a surprise. God was not taken off guard by all this. As the Old Testament references make clear, this was foretold and predicted by God to happen. And we're going to see more next week. The hardening of the Jewish people actually had a specific purpose. What was that purpose? It was to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's how that happened. The Jewish people, they rejected Christ. They were hardened against God. And as a result, when the gospel began to spread, the Jewish people, they said no. They refused it. They actually persecuted the early Christians. So what did the early Christians do? Well, they said, fine then. And they went and they took the gospel to other groups of people, to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles said, hey, we'll take it. And they believed and they were saved. So it was actually incredible. It was through Jewish rejection that the gospel began to spread around the world. As we see all throughout the Bible, God takes something bad and uses it for his glory and the good of his people. And I'm going to show you next week how it's actually going to come back around and be for the good of the Jewish people. We'll see that next week. But in light of this passage today, here's what I want to do with the time we have left. I want to share with you two things, two things we can take away and apply to our lives right now. Here's the first. You ready? Number one, against all odds, people still believe. The odds did not look good for the Jewish people in Paul's day. The Jews were responsible for crucifying Jesus, the Messiah who came to save them. They stoned Stephen, made him the very first martyr of the church, and they continued to persecute Christians. And most of them refused to trust in the very Savior God had sent for them. But Paul reminds us this was not a new situation for the people of God. The odds always seem to be stacked against God's people. Think about these stories with me this morning we're familiar with from the Old Testament. When God promised Abraham that he and his wife would bring forth a mighty nation of people, they weren't even able to have kids, and they were well past childbearing age. When God called Moses to bring his people out of Egypt, they had been slaves for 400 years to the mightiest nation on earth. When God called David to go and fight Goliath, not a single person in the trained Israelite army would dare to face him. And as we've already seen, when God called Elijah to be a prophet to the people, he was so discouraged and scared that he wanted to die. But no matter what happened, no matter what challenges came, God always preserved a remnant of people who were faithful, who trusted in him from Genesis to Malachi. That's one of the dominant themes we see. There's always a remnant. Against all odds, people still believe. There's always those that keep the faith alive. And friends, the same thing is true today. You and me, we're living proof of that. And just like Paul, we can say, look at me. The very fact that God has saved me is a testimony of his grace. Now look, I did not grow up living a rough life by the world's standards. God gave me two loving parents who loved the Lord and were dedicated to the church and the gospel. I did not live on the streets or do time in prison. My testimony would not sell many books. But the reality is, my heart was just as wicked and rebellious as anyone's. 
I was not a pretty good kid needing a little help. According to Scripture, I was dead in my sins. I had nothing good in me. And even though I knew how to play the, the good little Christian act that a lot of us do, I have zero doubt today of my need for Jesus. Just looking back over my life, I've, I've struggled with lust. I've lied to people I love. I've said and thought horrible things about others. I've done things just to make myself look good. I've worried and doubted God at every turn. And worst of all, most offensive to God is my pride. I tend to think I'm better than other people. And I look down on those who I deem less holy than me. I've even thought that maybe God owes me salvation because I'm the kind of person he needs. Isn't that ridiculous? I could go on and on, but the simple truth I'm trying to make here is this. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I need Jesus. And the fact that I'm standing here today is a miracle of God's grace. I, mean, I don't deserve one ounce of his love or his mercy, much less that he would send his own son to die for me. Not only that, but the fact that I'm up here today telling other people about Jesus and, and preaching from his word, it's just unbelievable. Listen to me, I did not want to do this. <laughs> my dad was a pastor, and some of the, the meanest things I've ever seen done were done to my own family in our own church. I told God in high school, God, I said, God, I will do anything else <laughs> if I be a preacher. That's a terrible career. Nobody likes preachers. <laughs> Not to mention, I've had a lifelong battle with my mental health. I can't remember a day that I haven't felt the inner turmoil of anxiety. I've been depressed. I've dealt with OCD since I was a kid. And to top it all off, get this, I've always been afraid of public speaking. <laughs> I tell you all this not to say, look at me, but to say, look at God. <laughs> look at what he's done. And I am who I am. I'm forgiven and victorious and redeemed and made whole. It's because of Jesus. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm living proof that against all odds, people still believe. If you're a Christian, the same thing is true. You're proof too. If you're here today and you trust in Jesus, then you know what a miracle of God's grace your life is. Some of you have been through more things than I can even imagine. Everything, listen to me. Everything he has saved you from is a testimony of his power. I think one of the greatest lies Satan has ever come up with is to tell believers that, you, that God cannot use you because of what you've done. You're too bad. You've made too many mistakes. You messed up one too many times to be used by God. There is nothing more ridiculous than that. All throughout Scripture, we see God delights in using the most broken people to display His glorious grace. You got a rough past. You got mistakes, regrets. You've done things that you're deeply ashamed of. Welcome to the club. You are the exact kind of person God wants to use to show off His powerful, miraculous, amazing grace. Think about it. Why did He pick David? To go fight Goliath. David, he had a whole army of people. He wanted David, the shepherd boy. Why did he call Moses? The guy said, I can't even talk right. I want you to go stand in front of the mightiest person on the face of the earth, Pharaoh, and plead for my people. Why did he do Elijah? Elijah's in the wilderness saying, just kill me. And he sent him out. To Why did he pick those people? Look at Paul. Look at the disciples. None of these guys were holy rollers. None of them had it together. 
But God chose all of them. He set them apart to be used by him. Why? For his glory. Against all odds, people still believe. And here's our second takeaway this morning. Number two, against all odds, God still saves. One of the best parts of my job is getting to sit down with people and hear their testimony. I got to tell you, we have some amazing testimonies in our church. That means there are people sitting around you right now who have done some really messed up stuff. I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding, but kind of. But seriously, I am never more encouraged than when I hear how God saved someone. We have people right here in this church who have been saved from addictions, broken families, abuse. People who were saved as young kids, some as teenagers, some as young adults, and some even after they thought they had it all figured out. We have people right here saved on different continents, in different languages, straight out of other religions. We have people in this room who were prayed for for years and years. They were witnessed to over and over, and one day, somehow, they finally believed. This church is a testimony to the truth that God still saves. Sometimes I feel like Elijah. Sometimes I get discouraged because so many people have rejected God. I get beat down because I look around the world and our nation and all the mess going on, and I wonder, man, does anybody care about Jesus? Does anybody care about the church? I've had people I prayed for for so long, people I shared the gospel with, I invited them to church, and they just flat out said no. They refused. I get discouraged like Elijah. Just as God reminded Elijah that there were 7,000 men who had not bent the knee to worship Baal, let this be your reminder today, God is still saving people. Against all odds, God is still saving people in our world. Right now, Christianity is exploding in South America, Africa, Asia. A few years ago, they came out and said the fastest growing Christian movement in the world is in the country of Iran. So while things might look bleak here in America, we need to understand that America is not the center of the world. God is moving all over our globe. And yet he is moving here. Against all odds, God is still saving people in our own nation. You wouldn't know it by watching the news, scrolling social media, or reading these ridiculous blogs where everything is panic and fear-mongering all the time. We tend to only hear about the bad stories when a church falls apart and when a leader messes everything up. But in some of the biggest and most lost cities in America, new churches are being planted and believers are being baptized left and right. Places like Boston, Portland, Los Angeles, New York City. Get this, in 2020, which was perhaps the most difficult year on churches in our lifetimes, the North American Mission Board, who we partner with, planted 588 new churches in America during COVID. It's one year. See, the hardness of our nation's heart makes our country ripe for God to bring revival. And he's doing it. He's doing it many places. Next, against all odds, God's still saving people in our community. Right here in Kansas City, in Johnson County, in Olathe, Kansas, God is working to bring people to Christ. Did you know on Easter Sunday... Our Hispanic mission that meets right over here in our fellowship hall had 56 people here. And they continue to add new families. Overflow Church, which is a church we're going to be planting in Martin City, Missouri in August. 
has recruited dozens of people who said, hey, I'll move, I'll go to help plant that church. I've gotten to know several other pastors in our area. Do you know there's other great churches in Olathe? I'm a little biased here, but there's a lot of great churches. And I'm talking to them, and they're telling me about what God's doing. He's saving people. So God is active. He's working right here around us. And lastly, against all odds, God will save people through you. These stories we hear about people planting churches and sharing the gospel and moving to some new place to be a missionary, these are just ordinary people being obedient to God's call. That's God's plan to reach the world. God's plan is not to write the gospel in the sky or shout it from heaven with a giant megaphone or assemble some kind of spiritual avengers to do it. His plan is you. It's to send you out with the gospel so you can share it with others. And if it's hard to imagine yourself having an impact on the world or changing someone's life, then that makes you the perfect candidate. If you think, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm I'm not holy enough, I haven't been a Christian long enough, I just don't know enough, I just don't feel qualified to reach other people, then my friend, you are the perfect person for this job. Because God loves to work against the odds. He loves to use our weaknesses and display his strength, to use our losses, to display his victory, to use our sin to show the power of his forgiveness. That's the way it works because it brings him more glory. The weaker you feel, the better you are to display the strength of God. So let me encourage you, don't underestimate our God. Don't count him out. Don't lose heart. God is doing more than you can even imagine. And right now, he's doing more than you know. Don't stop praying for that lost person in your life. You don't know what they're thinking when they lay in their bed at night. You don't know what other person God may bring along to close the deal. And don't stop looking for an opportunity to share, to be obedient. You don't know what that word, that question, that statement you made to that person might mean to them. Because no matter how things may look, God still saves, and that means people will still believe. Let's pray.